Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Hawaiian governor says the final death count from the wildfires is impossible to guess. How the White House responds amid outrage over a lack of advance warning for Maui residents. Former President Trump might soon be indicted in an election interference case in Georgia. The jury hears from witnesses and files, then rescinds a list of possible charges. Trump responds to the looming incident, and we find out why Georgia's prosecutor is likely to use the state's RICO law to do what other prosecutors can't. Federal prosecutors reneged on Hunter Biden's plea deal. That's what the president's son's lawyers are saying. We have legal analysis. And the first of its kind constitutional climate trial in the country. A judge in Montana hands down a victory to young climate activists in a case against the state government. A top Democrat has acknowledged that Hunter Biden, quote, did a lot of really unlawful and wrong things. Representative Jamie Raskin's statement comes after the DOJ appointed a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden. What they've got is Hunter Biden, and we all seem clear that this guy was addicted to drugs and did a lot of really unlawful and wrong things. And we have said, let the justice system run its course. U.S. Attorney David Weiss has now been named special counsel. Raskin told ABC that Weiss can make decisions about what, where, and when to charge Hunter. The plea agreement Weiss arranged with Hunter, that would likely have kept him out of jail for tax and gun charges, has apparently fallen through. Raskin says Weiss now wants to be certain that he has the authority to bring charges wherever he wants. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy questioned the appointment, writing on X, if Weiss negotiated the sweetheart deal that couldn't get approved, how can he be trusted as a special counsel? What's more, House Oversight Chair James Comer said the move is an attempt by Biden's DOJ to stonewall congressional oversight of alleged corruption of the Biden family. And lawyers for Hunter Biden say in a new filing that U.S. prosecutors have gone back on a plea deal that they had reached with him. Earlier today, I spoke with constitutional attorney Jenna Ellis for her analysis. Jenna, thanks so much for joining us. Hunter Biden's lawyers say that federal prosecutors reneged on a plea deal that would have resolved the tax and gun charges against him. We know that the overall plea deal fell through last week because the two sides couldn't agree on the scope of immunity, but Hunter's team says part of that deal is still valid and binding. What does this all mean, and how strong is the defense's argument here? Well, I think that the whole situation is quite fascinating, especially when you take uh, all of this into consideration with uh, Merrick Garland's, the attorney general's appointment of David Weiss, the prosecutor here, as now special counsel, and the prosecutors wanting to dismiss the case out of uh, the district in Delaware and bring this, they say, in either Washington, D.C. or California, which to me, uh, Steph, just says that they want to forum shop. Uh, this is all about wanting the uh, defense and the prosecution to come to an agreement that they want a judge's rubber stamp on. And because the judge, who is a Trump appointee, in this case out of Delaware, inquired into the scope of this plea agreement, neither side is happy. And so the prosecution is simply trying to move this to a preferable district. Now, prosecutors say that they intend to drop the misdemeanor tax charges against Hunter in Delaware and instead 
as you mentioned, bring them in California and Washington, D.C., where the alleged misconduct occurred. So the main purpose here is what you've just said. Is that right? Well, I think that the main purpose here is forum selecting and uh, trying to select a judge that is simply going to rubber stamp whatever plea agreement is entered into between the prosecutors and the defense. And so instead of having an adversarial system, which is what the justice system is designed to do, having prosecution and a defense, it seems like the problem here is that both the prosecution and the defense are on the same side of protecting Hunter Biden. And it's really the judge in this case out of Delaware that's asking questions that neither the prosecution nor the defense want to answer. And so it's interesting here that they would, uh, that the prosecutors would say that DC or California would be better suited when likely they would draw a non-Trump appointee judge in one of those two very, very blue districts. And you mentioned special counsel David Weiss. He was nominated by former President Trump, but Trump has said that he would not have picked Weiss as a special counsel in this investigation. And Republicans have criticized the choice, saying the appointment will obstruct congressional investigations into the Biden family. Would you say that those criticisms are valid? And I think that no matter who was appointed here, um, both sides would claim that this is political, um, and they may have reasons uh, for saying that. But really, I think for the American people, what's frustrating and what seems very political here is how the case is being handled. And clearly, uh, what is being alleged against Hunter Biden, this sweetheart deal, would never happen uh, to any other defendant in the regular course of a criminal investigation and criminal charges. And so the sweetheart deal um, I think was problematic to begin with. And now the fact that this judge didn't just rubber stamp it, and so now this prosecutor wants to switch jurisdictions, uh, really should raise some very important and concerning questions about the independence of the prosecutor in this instance and whether or not he really can be unbiased, whether he's acting in the capacity of U.S. attorney or special counsel. Jenna, always great to have you on our show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steph. Georgia prosecutors are expected to file charges against former President Trump any time now. The grand jury began hearing from witnesses today and a key document was leaked, then rescinded. Former President Trump is facing election interference charges in Fulton County, Georgia. In the center of the case is a phone call between Trump and Georgia's Secretary of State on January 2, 2021. Trump allegedly said he won Georgia and asked the secretary to find the votes Trump needed to beat Biden. A Fulton County grand jury began hearing from witnesses Monday. Also on Monday, the court's website posted this document showing a list of several criminal charges to be brought against Trump. They include state racketeering counts, conspiracy to commit false statements, and solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer. However, the court quickly deleted the document after posting it, saying it contained wrong information. It's not clear yet when charges could be filed. However, many expect it to happen soon. Trump commented on the case on Monday, saying, I just hope Republicans and the people of our now-failing nation see what is happening to our democracy and freedom. A sitting president has indicted, in many different forms and locales, his political opponent, who is substantially leading him in the polls. The Georgia case would be the fourth one against Trump. The first one was brought in Manhattan over hush money payments, allegedly to cover up an affair and clear his path to the presidency in 2016. The second one was related to classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago resort and potential mishandling of them. And just earlier this month, the third one was filed in D.C. over his actions after the 2020 presidential election. 
The Fulton County Sheriff's Office previously said that Trump won't receive special treatment if indicted in Georgia and that it would take Trump's mugshot when arraigned, something that hasn't happened in the other three cases. And Georgia prosecutor Fannie Willis does have power that other state prosecutors normally don't. A former state prosecutor told NTD's Arlene Richards why. Georgia's Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis is expected to file RICO charges against former President Trump and others as early as next week. The RICO statute, or Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, is normally used to tackle organized crime. Willis is known for using RICO to bring charges against multiple people. There are unique differences between Georgia's RICO law and the federal law. The federal statute, for instance, requires that prosecutors show proof that there is a threat of ongoing racketeering activity. In Georgia, only two related acts are needed to prove a pattern. So tell me, what can a Georgia prosecutor do under the Georgia RICO statute that she couldn't do under the federal RICO statute? In, uh, in the Georgia RICO case, because she has such free reign and because they have situations where they're people may not necessarily know each other uh, you get to have, you get to have um, hearsay statements uh, in, in introduced in these kinds of cases that are not normally allowed in in a courtroom and he said hearsay is when a person testifies about what a third person told him there are also some challenges but these uh, these cases can go on very very long on Sunday, Trump responded to the looming indictment in a social media post. He said, I made a perfect phone call of protest. What does phony Fani have to do with me? She should instead focus on the record number of murders in Atlanta. Part of Willis's investigation centers around a phone call that Trump had with Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger on January 2, 2021. Numerous reports have focused on a statement Trump made during the hour-long call. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. The statement lies at the heart of Willis's investigation into whether or not Trump attempted to overturn the election. Trump made the statement nearly 40 minutes into the call. It appears from the transcript that Trump made the call in an effort to get more time to present numerous findings of election fraud. If convicted under RICO in Georgia, Trump could face a mandatory five-year minimum sentence. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And the death toll is expected to climb in the deadliest U.S. wildfire in over 100 years. The Biden administration says it's focused on finding those still missing while outrage intensifies over failures to warn residents. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. More than 100 people have been confirmed dead. That's as specialist teams continue to search for those missing in the ruins of the Maui wildfires. And the head of FEMA told us at today's White House briefing that search efforts have been difficult. It is extremely hazardous. Nothing can prepare you for what I saw during my time here. And Hawaii's governor warned that the final death count could be much higher. They will find 10 to 20 people per day probably until they finish. Uh, 
and it's probably going to take 10 days. It's impossible to guess, really. The administration says it has sent hundreds of FEMA employees to help with survivors on the ground. And that is working with dozens of agencies in what it calls a whole-of-government approach. But questions are mounting over why the world's largest siren system stays silent when fires quickly spread into the neighborhood. The state is launching a formal review into its emergency response, but some are also questioning a lack of comments from the president. But the press secretary also confirms that President Biden has no plans to travel to Hawaii as of now, though she asked that we will hear more from him in the coming days. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. An investigation is underway after a massive explosion shook a Pittsburgh suburb over the weekend. Five people were killed, including a teenager. Another person is being treated for critical injuries. Crews from 18 different local fire departments converged on the scene in Plum, Pennsylvania on Saturday morning. They found one house leveled completely and two neighboring houses on fire. It took crews from 18 different fire departments to put out the fire and search the rubble for survivors. 57 firefighters were treated on the scene for minor issues. A local power company representative said the gas system there was operating as designed. Gas has been shut off in the area for safety reasons. The explosion is under investigation by the county fire marshal's office, along with borough and county law enforcement. Officials say it may be a long process. And in Montana, a judge just handed down a significant victory to young climate activists. It was the first of its kind constitutional climate rally trial in the country. Now Montana must allow agencies to consider certain pollutants when approving fossil fuel projects. That's because a clause in its state constitution guarantees, quote, a clean and healthful environment. Over a dozen young people ranging in age from 5 to 22 brought the lawsuit. The ruling doesn't prevent mining or burning fossil fuels in the state directly. Instead, it reverses a recently passed state law that pertains to state agencies allowing projects. The law blocks them from considering what's known as greenhouse gases. The case could have legal reverberations for other climate lawsuits, as a handful of other states have a similar clause in their constitutions. And coming up, police raid a small-town newspaper in Kansas, seizing phones and computers. Was it a legal part of a criminal investigation or a violation of the First Amendment? And people rally outside of the New York State Courthouse. Teachers fired for not taking the COVID vaccine had their day in court. Students are cheating with ChatGPT, the AI chatbot that can write a perfect essay in seconds. Teachers struggle to detect bot-generated homework. And shares in China's largest private real estate developer fell 18% today, the latest sign of trouble in the Chinese real estate industry. We'll have details when we come back. Allegations of abuse of power and First Amendment violations are being made after police raided a Kansas newspaper last week. Police effectively closed down the Marion County record, seizing phones, computers and their file server. Police served a warrant on the small town newspaper after suspecting its involvement in the identity theft of a local business owner. 
The warrant was signed by a local judge, but usually police are required to get a subpoena for materials taken from journalists. Local police chief Gideon Cody says there are exceptions to the subpoena requirement if there is a reason to believe the journalist is involved in wrongdoing. He also said when the truth becomes public, the justice system will be vindicated. The owner and publisher of the newspaper, Eric Meyer, says he plans to sue the city of Marion and the individuals involved in the raid. And the Marion County record says its 98-year-old co-owner collapsed on Saturday and died. The newspaper attributes Joan Meyer's death to stress after what it called the illegal raid on her home and the newspaper's office. NTD could not verify the state of Joan Meyer's health before the warrant was served or her cause of death. Six former Mississippi law enforcement officers pleaded guilty today to torture and abuse. The charges stem from cruel treatment of two black men, one of whom was shot in the mouth, breaking his jaw. Court documents say the officers were responding to a report by a neighbor of suspicious activity, but they illegally entered the house, then handcuffed, kicked, and tased them. Victims say the former policemen repeatedly used racial slurs and threatened sexual abuse. The former officers also pleaded guilty earlier this month to federal charges in connection to the same January incident. And a class action lawsuit about COVID vaccine mandates. New York City teachers who were fired for not taking the COVID vaccine had their day in court. NTD's Jason Perry attended the rally on Staten Island. People rallied outside of the New York State Supreme Courthouse on Staten Island in support of teachers, specifically New York City Department of Education workers who were fired for not taking the COVID-19 vaccine after their religious exemption requests were denied. Also, people from other professions who were personally affected by the medical mandate spoke at the rally, including firefighter Paul Schwait, the founder of Bravest for Choice. We have leadership in the fire department right here. Years and years of service. We have a lieutenant, a, a retired battalion chief, and a lieutenant that's still out of work right now. Also, John Matlin was fired from his healthcare worker position in New York City after he refused to take the COVID-19 vaccine. Little tidbit about me, I moved to Florida. I am a Floridian now. I spend more than half a year in Florida because they here do not deserve a tax dollar from me. No unemployment. The people at the rally were expecting the judge to make a decision on a class action lawsuit against the city of New York. But the judge pushed back the date for that decision to September 6th. That's the date before the first day of school in New York City. I spoke with the attorney on the case, Sunjata Gibson, after today's court session. Under our uh, constitutional system, under federal and state law, not just our constitutions but statutes, employers have to accommodate religious beliefs of employees unless they can prove it would be an undue hardship to do so or unless they can prove that the person is insincere. And she added this about the trial so far. So they didn't do any of that. They admit they never looked at any of the factors they're supposed to look at. They used the wrong standard of law. They said that it would be more than a minimal burden, which they assumed based on no evidence. I also spoke with Michael Kane, founder of Teachers for Choice, and one of the people bringing the lawsuit. Kane was a special education teacher for 14 years until he was fired for not taking the COVID-19 vaccine. You know, the only other thing that I want to add is that, you know, when this whole thing started, 
There was really nobody prominent standing by us but Robert F. Kennedy Jr. You know, he's been in this fight for over 18 years. He's backed all of our lawsuits. Kennedy is the founder of Children's Health Defense, which sponsored this lawsuit against the city of New York. The Children's Health Defense says part of its mission is to advocate for worldwide rights to health freedom and bodily autonomy. Jason Perry, NCD News. Students are cheating with ChatGPT. In one student's essay, a teacher found the text, I am just an AI language model. I don't have an opinion on that. Teachers are trying to come up with ways to AI proof their courses, but there may not be a way. NTD's Fake Quarter has more. Cheating is nothing new, but with smart AI programs like ChatGPT, which can write a perfect essay in three seconds, cheating is now fast, easy, and free, giving teachers a headache. There are AI tools that can detect ChatGPT's writing, but... They're not capable of finding all the flaws. I know that people on the front lines are kind of tearing their hair out about how persistent the problem is and how much worse it's getting because the tools are just getting better. Educator Mike Bergen also says the tools are frequently wrong, meaning students who didn't cheat are falsely accused of cheating. There is no foolproof way to detect cheating. Be really engaged, close read work, know your students, know their writing styles, know their vocabulary levels, know how they tell stories. That's the first thing that's going to be a flag. If a teacher reads something and says, this doesn't sound like my student, it may not be. Forbes columnist Derek Newton says the most valuable tool is teacher engagement. They should tell students how chat GPT should and should not be used and then pay close attention to their work. I have a teacher friend who teaches uh, high school English. And if a student is a C student and then the next day they're able to, to summarize Macbeth perfectly, uh, chances are they are using ChatGPT. Jeff Hughes is the author of How to Raise Smart Kids with AI. He sees teachers checking students' work by using existing technology. The revisions feature in Microsoft Word. Uh, what they're looking at is turning on revisions. So a student would have to show, this is my first draft, these are the corrections I made, this is the thought process, and that's available right now. The revisions feature can also tell when something is copied and pasted. So a student can't simply copy and paste a chunk of text from ChatGPT. Bay Quarter, NTD News. For the first time in history, three branches of the U.S. military are without a leader confirmed by the Senate. This is as Senator Tommy Tuberville continues to block military nominations. The U.S. Navy today became the third branch of the military to no longer have a leader for the first time in history. Retiring Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday gave up command. The other two branches are the Army and the Marine Corps. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin calls the situation unprecedented, unnecessary and unsafe. President Biden has nominated Admiral Lisa Franchetti to lead the Navy. Meanwhile, Tuberville has blocked hundreds of military nominations from moving forward. He says this is to protest the Pentagon's policy of using government funding to cover travel costs for abortions. Coming up, Fulton County, Georgia's court's website lists several criminal charges against former President Trump before quickly removing the document. The county DA's office says no charges have been filed. And Niger's Honda says it plans to prosecute ousted President Mohamed Bazoum for high treason. And world leaders have expressed concern about the conditions in which Bazoum and his family are being held. We'll have those updates and more for you after the break.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The death toll rises to 96 in the Hawaiian wildfires. President Biden sends his prayers as authorities continue to coordinate resources for the community. Hunter Biden's lawyers say federal prosecutors have reneged on a major part of their plea deal. This case is now poised to go to trial. A grand jury in Georgia considers findings and the investigation into former President Trump. They're expected to decide within days whether Trump should be indicted over the 2020 presidential election. Earlier today, I spoke with Janice Heisel, an Epic Times reporter who's been following this case. Janice, thanks so much for joining us. The Fulton County Court briefly listed criminal charges against Trump earlier today before the grand jury voted. What's the significance of this in your view? Um, a lot of people are quite concerned about this being possibly leaked on purpose, although there is also a chance that it could have just been done accidentally. Although the court later said no charges have been filed yet, critics are concerned that it could show a disruption to legal procedures and potential upending of justice. What are your thoughts on that? What are you seeing out there? Well, that there are a lot of concerns out there about, you know, tainting the entire uh, process and showing that perhaps that these charges were already locked, stocked, and barrel decided before the grand jury has voted, which is supposed to not—that's not supposed to be how the process works. It's supposed to be the grand jury makes its own decision. Now, of course, we've all heard the old cliche about you can indict a ham sandwich if you're a prosecutor, uh, get the grand jury to go along with that, uh, but the. The concern is that the grand jury is supposed to have some degree of independence and vote on the actual charges. And so what are other responses that we're seeing so far? We know supporters of former President Trump are coming out and saying things such as um, Fannie Willis, the district attorney who is in charge of this grand jury process, should actually be removed from office. And that if Brian Kemp, the governor, uh, had the guts to do that, that he should. That's what they're saying. Um, and there's a lot of concern on that end of things. Also, very uh, interestingly, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is one of the presidential contenders against former President Trump is coming out and saying that he feels that President Trump should take a novel approach himself and challenge this on the grounds that it's unconstitutional violation of his due process rights by releasing this before the grand jury has actually voted. Now, how would a Georgia indictment differ from the federal January 6th case? Well, the Significantly for former President Trump, one of the biggest differences is say that you know he were to be convicted of the state charges. That is not within the president's purview to pardon himself if he were to be reelected. So he can pardon himself if he would be convicted on the federal cases, but not here in the state cases. Trump himself says he believes that these cases are a form of election interference. How do you think it could affect his campaign? Well, obviously, if you are stuck in depositions, if you are stuck going to court proceedings, you're not out on the campaign trail. That's the most obvious effect on his campaign. Um, there is also an argument, though, on the other side that is helping his campaign because um, some people are seeing this as being, you know, the witch hunt that he claims it to be and that this is just piling on of charges that in 
some people's opinions seem to not hold a lot of water. So it, 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 there are different ways of weighing this, for sure. Janice Heisel, reporter for the Epic Times, thank you so much. Thank you. A spokesperson for Niger's Hunda says it has gathered enough evidence to prosecute ousted President Mohamed Bazoum for high treason. David Doyle has more. The military junta that seized power in Niger has said it will prosecute ousted President Mohamed Bazoum for high treason. Spokesperson Colonel Amadou Abdraman said late on Sunday that that was over Bazoum's exchanges with foreign heads of state and international organizations. The July 26th coup saw Bazoum imprisoned and the elected government dissolved. That's drawn condemnation from global powers. West African regional bloc ECOWAS has activated a standby military force that could intervene to reinstate Bazoum. What's at stake is not only the future of a country of 26 million people and its deposed leader. Niger is a major uranium producer and a Western ally in the fight against local affiliates of Al-Qaeda and Islamic State that have killed thousands and displaced millions in the wider region. Western powers fear that West and Central Africa's seventh coup in three years could also open the door to further Russian influence. Niger's junta has signaled a potential willingness to find a diplomatic solution to the standoff. ECOWAS is expected to push for more talks and has said it wants to send a committee to meet the junta in Niger's capital. The African Union, the EU, the United States and the UN have all said they are worried about the conditions in which Bazoum and his family are being held. Bazoum's political party has said they have no access to running water, fresh food or doctors. Bazoum told Human Rights Watch that his son needs to see a doctor because of a serious heart condition. However, the junta said on Sunday that Bazoum was regularly seeing a doctor. The last visit was on August 12th, it said, adding that the doctor raised no concerns about the health of Bazoum or members of his family. And over in Argentina, the presidential primary election has taken an unexpected turn. A libertarian outsider has emerged as the frontrunner. Javier Millet, an economist and admirer of former President Trump, secured 30% of the votes counted on Sunday. The country's two main political forces were both trailing behind him. This marks a huge shakeup in the race toward the presidential elections in October and could signal a possible change in the country's political landscape. Malay has vowed to, quote, put an end to the parasitic and useless political caste that is destroying Argentina. His coalition has pledged to drastically cut government spending, deregulate private gun ownership, and dollarize the economy. China's largest private real estate developer, Country Garden, is seeking to delay payment on a private onshore bond for the first time. This is the latest sign of a stifling cash crunch in the property sector. NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with an analyst to try to identify the core of the crisis. And now joining me here is Antonio Graceffo, China economic analyst. So I wanted to start off today with China's property sector. Um, we have news that Country Garden, one of China's most well-known uh, property de developers, its shares fell 18% on, on default risks. What do you think is the biggest headwind facing China's property industry? Well, I think one of the problems is that the property industry is famously 
you know, overblown in terms of uh, the prices are too high, the debt is too high, uh, the sector has been struggling for three or four years. So when you have bad press, even though it's justified, but when you have bad press, that then makes the situation even worse because people are even more afraid to invest, even more afraid to buy homes and things like that. Uh, you have a lot of people in China that prepaid uh, for construction of apartments, and then if the company that is building the apartment, if, if they default, if they go bankrupt, if they can't get more money from the bank, they stop the building. So then the owner winds up with an apartment that's not finished, maybe they can't move in, and meanwhile, it's, you know, they've invested all their money in it. So people are very much afraid. Um, the other issue is that the property sector accounts for about 20 to 30% of the, pop, of the uh, total GDP. And then we have allied industries, you know, people uh, selling services and goods and things, uh, materials to the construction sector, right? And then these will also be negatively affected when the uh, property sector goes down. So the property sector in China is usually seen as an arbiter of the whole economy. When we see the property sector in trouble, we assume the Chinese economy is in trouble. And how did this sector become so leveraged? Well. Property sector is always going to be leveraged. You know, you're always going to be building. Construction companies know that they can amplify the number of projects they can do by taking tremendous leverage. So this is always the case. Even in the United States, it's very heavily leveraged. The problem is it's, it's a bit of a Ponzi scheme where the banks can keep loaning out money as long as new money is coming in. If new money stops coming in, eventually these loans you know, will collapse. Or the same thing with, it, with, with the construction companies. Construction company borrows a bunch of money to build a construction uh, unit, you know, unit A. Now when they move on to unit B, they get, get more money in. In unit C, they get more money in. And they're sort of like rolling over the debt, rolling over the debt. Well, they, they want to build unit D, the fourth one in the series, and suddenly they can't borrow money. Now they're not getting new money in, and suddenly they're unable to make the, the debt payments on the previous you know, projects they were working on. And I think a lot of property developers were high on speculation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, one of the issues in China is that there weren't a lot of things for people to invest in for the longest time. Um, in fact, before there was really a stock exchange, there was, you know, there, there was real estate. And a lot of people who don't understand the stock exchange or don't understand uh, you know, investing in stocks, they feel that if they buy real estate, it's very secure. I mean, this is in this country. This is, you know, most of the world is like this. People feel like, well, if I buy a building, I can see it, I can touch it, I can live in it. They feel like it's a solid investment. And so that's how the real estate sector just absorbed, you know, just, just so much money. And, and the point that I always want to stress about Chinese real estate is that this is not young people buying homes. Young people cannot afford homes. Apartments in Shanghai are many times as expensive as apartments in New York City, dramatically more expensive than um, freestanding homes with land in other parts of the United States. So this is not a young married couple buying a house. This is a young married couple receiving the lifetime savings of all four parents and all eight grandparents, giving them all the money to buy this one apartment. Well, all right, Antonio Crisepo, pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. To watch John's full interview, head over to the NTD business page on ntd.com or Epic TV. Don and his guests also discuss China's deflation problem, its aging population, and where China's economy is headed. And coming up, they've won the past two NCAA titles, but where will the Georgia Bulldogs rank in today's preseason poll? And billboards are springing up around Los Angeles, but not with advertisements. 
feature the faces of murder victims. We'll have these stories and more after the break. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at the upcoming college football season. That's right, Steph. The AP preseason top 25 poll was released today, and two-time defending champion Georgia was number one. Now, no team has won three straight national titles since the advent of the AP poll all the way back in 1936. The Bulldogs, who've now won 17 straight games overall, have had 25 players drafted over the past two years including eight in the first round alone. They'll also have to replace quarterback Stetson Bennett, who was fourth in the Heisman voting last year. Now behind Georgia was Michigan with their highest preseason ranking in more than three decades. They're followed by rival Ohio State and then SEC powers Alabama and LSU. For the Tide, the number four preseason ranking is their lowest since 2009. Returning to the list, USC is at number six. The Trojans return Heisman-winning quarterback Caleb Williams in what will be their final season in the Pac-12. They're followed by Penn State, Florida State, Clemson, and finally Washington at number 10. And in international soccer news, a Saudi Pro League club has agreed to a nearly $100 million deal with Paris Saint-Germain for Neymar, according to multiple reports. The Saudi club Al-Halal, which is one of four clubs owned by the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, has reportedly signed Neymar to a two-year deal with an option for a third season. Now, six years ago, Paris Saint-Germain signed Neymar away from Barcelona in what is still a record amount of 222 million euros, or over 240 million dollars. Now, for your sports viewing schedule tonight, nine baseball games are on, including a Rangers-Angels matchup with three-time Cy Young winner Max Scherzer making his third start for Texas. On the other side, Angels two-way star Shohei Otani, who leads the majors with 41 home runs, will be facing Scherzer for the first time. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, over to you. Thanks, Dave. Next, new billboards are scattered across Southern California, but their purpose is far from usual advertising. Instead, they feature the faces of murder victims. NTD's Christina Corona has more. Los Angeles County officials held a press conference on Saturday below a billboard featuring victims of unsolved homicides next to the 605 freeway in Baldwin Park. Uh, we stand here with the families of murdered victims and we are calling on the community to help our investigators by coming forward with information to solve these murders. These are not just billboards, but a prayer for help from each one of these families. Our hope is that when somebody sees these billboards, uh, they will see it, it will jog their memory, and they will be encouraged to come forward with any piece of information, no matter how small. This is one of many billboards throughout Los Angeles County displaying the photos of murdered victims. Several families spoke out about the victims who were taken too soon. This is my grandbaby. He was my first and only grandson back in 2016. He was murdered on July 6, 2016 in the city of Altadena. Somebody went, went by and started shooting. They, did, they shot 13 rounds, which they actually hit him. So he succumbed to his injuries on July 6th. 
My son was Reginald Martin Thompson Sr. He was murdered on January 11th of 2022 on the corner of Imperial and Vermont at approximately 9 p.m. My family has been devastated. He has children. For those who want to help and come forward with information on these cold cases, there are several tools in place to do so. Crime Stoppers is an organization that was put together in order to report criminal activity anonymously. The Crime Stoppers app is 100% uh, anonymous, or you can call the number and uh, you remain anonymous so they don't ask you any question about yourself and you give off that tip. It's very, very important, right? We want to make sure that we get criminals off the street so that there's no other victims. Officials said there have been 3,500 homicides since 2001 and 1,800 have been solved to date. For any information regarding any murder, the community is urged to call Los Angeles County Sheriff's Homicide at 323-890-5500, your local police department, LAPD, or Crime Stoppers. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.